0: This is a Library Channel program from the UC San Diego Library. Visit us at www.uctv.tv slash
1: library dash channel for interviews, author talks, and other programs that will inspire
0: you to read, write, think,
1: and dream.
2: Uh, Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Um, I'm Brian Schotlander, and I'm very pleased to welcome you this evening to Geisel Library um, to be with us to kick off the library's Climate Change at the Crossroads program. Um, before I introduce the program, I'd like to acknowledge um, one very distinguished visitor we have with us tonight, Walter Monk. Very pleased to have you with us tonight, sir. Thank you. Um, Walter is truly a person who needs no introduction to this audience. So welcome to all of you, and I'm very pleased that you are able to join us. Tonight is the first of three events uh, that the library has planned for the month of April um, in honor of and recognition of Earth Month. And with this series, we also pay homage to the path-breaking climate science and climate scientists at the university's Scripps Institution of Oceanography, where some of the most significant milestones in the evolution of climate science have been achieved. It was back in 1957 that Scripps oceanographer, Roger Ravel, often called the father of UC San Diego, co-authored an eerily prescient paper with Hunts Zeus in which he wrote, quote, human beings are now carrying out a large scale geophysical experiment of a kind that could not have happened in the past nor be reproduced in the future. Just a few months later, Scripps scientist Charles David Keeling carried out a series of painstaking measurements to gauge the levels of greenhouse gas in the atmosphere, documenting that those levels were rising annually. Tonight, we are honored to have with us Professor Virabhadran Ramanathan, or Ram as he is known on campus the first speaker in our Earth Month series and one of Scripps Oceanography's climate science pioneers. Like his trailblazing predecessors Keeling and Ravel, Professor Ramanathan has devoted much of his academic career to the study of climate and atmospheric science and has made significant contributions to the world's knowledge about climate change and its mitigation. Among his many achievements, Professor Ramanathan discovered the greenhouse effect of halocarbons, especially CFCs, and in 1980, he predicted, with scientist Roland Madden, that global warming would be detected by the year 2000, which, sadly, and of course, proved to be accurate. He also led the first international assessment of the climate effects of man-made gases, and pollutants other than carbon dioxide, concluding that they contributed equally to global warming. Most recently, his research has found that mitigation of short-lived pollutants like black carbon, methane, ozone, and HFCs will slow down global warming significantly during this century. This proposal has been adopted by the United Nations and 30 of its member countries, including the United States, and a new coalition called the Climate and Clean Air Coalition is implementing mitigation actions for short-lived climate pollutants. Professor Ramanathan is the recipient of numerous awards and honors, including the Champions of the Earth Award, the United Nations' highest environmental honor. He is a member of the Pontifical Academy of Sciences and has played a key role in advising Pope Francis and other religious leaders on climate change issues. He is also playing, closer to home, a leadership role in the University of California's Carbon Neutrality Initiative, in which the UC system has pledged to virtually eliminate its contribution to global warming. But now, it is my distinct pleasure to invite Professor Ramanathan to the lectern. Um, After his talk, he will be happy to answer questions. Please join me in welcoming Professor Ramanathan.
1: Thank you so much for that uh, generous uh, introduction. It's really a distinct honor to open this series um, i 'm so glad you mentioned uh, Roger Revelle and david Keeling and, and without any exaggeration, these two are the scientists who got us to thinking about this problem and alerted us to fundamental science so truly, we are all standing on the shoulder of shoulders of giants and uh, so coming back to the topic, obviously bending the curve. No matter what we think about population, our consumption of natural resources, fertilizer use, everything is rising. And we do need to bend those curves to sustainable levels. But at the top of this curve is the curve of climate change. and, and it's become uh, the major global issue. So uh, let me ask the, answer the question and then present the data to support that. Why do we need an alliance between science, religion and policy? We have convincing evidence that the climate has changed. Okay? And we have you know, pretty compelling evidence that it's due to human activities and after decades of research, I myself started working on this problem 42 years ago. <clears throat> uh, between scientists and policymakers, we know what the solutions are, what we need to do. And we have now tremendous support, top down, we saw in the Paris summit last November, 190 national leaders finally signed on a piece of paper, acknowledging it's a serious problem, acknowledging it's due to human activities and the solutions. But we are not doing or taking the sort of drastic actions that's needed to bend that curve. And there are many reasons. One major reason is there is not strong public support. So it's in this context we need... (coughs) another tool in our toolkit to attack this problem. And I'm submitting to you this alliance between science, religion, and policy is is that tool we were looking for. And I want to tell you how I came to that conclusion. Just to let you know, so you have to know what's the hook to religion, or talking to somebody like Pope Francis, or the Dalai Lama, or the leaders is that because of the delay in actions we have taken, this has become a moral, ethical problem. So that's the hook to the religious leaders. Ultimately, the solution of this is going to depend or rely on all of us pursuing it for the common good. The actions we take may benefit some villager living thousands of miles away, a wider drought. So that's the theme So you can ask, where did my journey of this pursuit of the common good start? So that's my ancestral village, a home next to my grandfather's house. My my grandfather's house was destroyed about 10 years ago. I took this picture 10 years ago. And look at how remarkably happy those children are. I was one of those topless kids. just 60 years ago, just sitting in that veranda. it used to be a post office, because you couldn't go inside. It was so hot, inside was hot. Outside is even hotter. So the only place you could sit was in that shade. I spent days and days and days, or 10, 15 years of summer. So why did that topless kid come to America? in pursuit of the common good. I, 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 honestly, this, my dream was to own a Chevy Impala. And mind you, it's a big car, so I could have given right to many. So that's the common good for me. So where, where did that end? And because of my work on the environment, my Impala dream became a smart dream, a two-seater car. So, uh, uh, so let me see what made me do that. And, you know, I, I came to the U.S. To, to get my Ph.D. And my Ph.D. was on atmospheres of Mars and Venus. In fact, I was looking at the greenhouse effect of carbon dioxide. That's why Venus is so hot. And on my, so I got a, a postdoc position after my Ph.D. at NASA, Langley, So in the evenings, my daytime job was something different. So evening, I started working on this greenhouse of halocarbons. It was used as refrigerants. And two uh, well-known scientists, Roland and Molina, just published a paper a year before mine, and they got a Nobel Prize for that, pointing out these chlorofluorocarbons were chemically destroying the ozone layer. And my training (coughs) was in quantum mechanics when I came to this country. So I did quantum mechanical estimates that showed the CFCs were potent greenhouse gases. They were so potent, a ton of these CFCs, chlorofluorocarbons, was having the same effect on warming as 10,000 tons of carbon dioxide. So until then, we had thought climate change problem was just a CO2 problem. Just change overnight. Of course, I was viciously attacked by established scientists. They thought it was crazy. It took them a few years to convince themselves. Now, of course, it's quite an accepted thing. So I knew the climate problem had become a lot more serious than just the CO2. So I got curious, teamed up with this famous uh, meteorologist Madden. There's an oscillation called Madden-Julian oscillation named after him. So he was in, in the discovery of that. And I persuaded Roland, why don't you do something more useful, and had him work with me on when are we going to detect? So it's a statistical, dynamical, theoretical model. And we made this prediction, if this theory is right, it should be detected by year 2000. So I'm not going to spend too much time. This shows the observed temperature records. That's how the planet's temperature records. It goes up and down and fits. goes up, cools down, goes up, cools down. So our paper was published when the planet was still in the cooling phase. So that's why people thought this paper was crazy too. So we said in 20 years, if the theory was that you should see it. And as you can see, 2000 is when it went above what's called noise in the system. And IPCC, the UN, 2000 scientists concluded, unfortunately, that we are seeing the human effect. And that's pretty important. We have so many half the Americas still skeptic about this. Their theory is judged by the prediction it makes. And remember, Einstein's theory of light rays getting bent by gravity was proved. Only then he became famous. So the CO2 climate effect have convincing examples like this. I'm just citing what I'm involved. There were many predictions were made that the poles would warm much more, sea ice would melt. All of that has come true. Okay? So that's how we scientists say that we have compelling proof that the warming we are seeing is due to human activities. Anyway, my own work, I am not a modeler. I started as a theoretician. was basically an experimentalist. At NASA, my daytime job, I helped design this satellite experiment on your sea left, to look at the heat flow of the Earth and measure the greenhouse effect directly. More recently, at Scripps, I designed this new way of observing the atmosphere using unmanned aircrafts. We caught the brown cloud, pollution cloud, in between our aircraft and really measured what it was doing to the Earth system. So that's my basis, experimentally, experimental base. So, for me to go to religion takes a huge amount of desperation. So, I wanted to show you what the desperation are. So, let's start with carbon dioxide. You know, everything we burn fossil fuels, firewood the carbon in that becomes carbon dioxide. The problem with that is once you release it, for example, Whatever CO2 we released in driving here, 50% stays in the air for 100 years, half of everything we need today. About 20% stays for 1,000 to 10,000 years. So they're all accumulating. So it took us from Mr. James Watt's invention of the steam engine, it took us 220 years to put the first trillion tons. Just imagine what trillion tons of CO2 means that's equal to 500 billion cars we have tossed into the air, just the sheer magnitude of that. And then it took us only 40 years to put the second trillion tons. Half of that is still zipping around. So there are 500 billion cars in the air going around. We don't see it because it's in the form of gases. So this covers the planet like a blanket. Just like a blanket keeps us warm, not because the blanket is giving any heat, it just traps our body heat. That's exactly what these gases do. The planet gives off its heat in infrared wavelengths. We call it infrared heat. And this blanket traps that infrared heat. And just like your wool blanket keeps you warm, these gases keep the surface of the planet warm. The oceans, the land, the vegetation, everything are covered by this. So that 2 trillion tons, our best theory and empirical data suggest, should have already committed the planet to a degree and a half warming. And we have already seen one degree of that warming. Another half a degree, Scripps oceanographers have shown, is in the oceans. The ocean will cough it up in the next 20, 30, 40 years. So it's already in the back, another half a degree. Okay? So you can ask, why do you care about Big deal about one and a half degrees. And skeptics point out, oh, the planet's climate changes, there were ice ages, this. Exactly, they are correct. The planet's climate changes independent of us. First, that's on time scales of thousands of years. The second, which is what really worries me about this one and a half, two degrees, the planet goes through glacial, interglacial cycles, right? 20,000 years ago, we had a major glaciation. Chicago was buried under a kilometer thick of ice sheet. We are now in a warm epoch, intraglacial. And you heat the planet another degree and a half from that, the planet has not seen that climate, at least in the last few million years. So no ecosystem, none of the ocean circulation system of the ocean chemistry has seen such a warm planet. So that's our worry. We are in an anomalous stage. So where do we stand? We will put the next trillion tons in another 17 years. We are really racing towards that cliff. So by the time you have the third trillion, you have committed the planet to two and a half degree warming. And when will we see it? We could see it by as, soon as, as early as 2050. So that is how the climate problem has become a lot more bigger, a lot sooner. We used to think of two degree warming end of the century. We are talking about 2050. So the good news in that is the Paris Agreement, while it is a fantastic piece of paper, it's the classic case of the emperor has no clothes. The commitment there is not strong. So they all agree we have to keep the warming under 2, but if you look at the commitment they have made, the emissions will still increase from 50 billion tons, which it's today, to 57. So it's just getting worse. So we are not bending that curve still. The good news is there is still time to limit the warming. Okay. So if you look at this, CO2, what are the solutions? CO2 has, you know, uh, other what call, I call rogue companions, the ones we heard in, my t- in the introduction, short-lived climate pollutants. Black carbon, methane, halo carbon, ozone. The good news there is we know how to cut them. We have technology how to cut them. So if you cut these short-lived climate pollutants, we can slow down the warming by 50% in the next 20, 30 years. Okay? So you think of this... As we have two levers, the right-hand lever is where you put the CO2 emissions down, decarbonize the economy. Our economy is tied to the carbon emission. And that takes the whole humanity. That's why it shows huge uh, pick lever. The other one is short-lived pollutants lever. And California has already cut the short-lived climate pollutants by 50%. So we have the technology in this day to tell, show the rest of the world how to do it. In addition to that, we have to suck some of the CO2 out of the air. So those are the three solutions. So now I bring in the science and religion. Okay. Why bring in religion? Because it's an ethical, moral issue. There are two types. Intergenerational equity... Because the effects things like melting of the glaciers rise in sea level will continue for 1,000 to 10,000 years, we are impacting generations to be born, just so we can all continue our current standard of living. So what we do in the next 30 years is, could lead to sea level rise of 10, 30 meters several hundred years from now. Okay. The second is intragenerational equity. There is an asymmetry between those who emit CO2 and those who suffer the worst consequences. I think I show that here. Roughly 60% of the emissions come from top 1 billion. Of course, this 1 billion live everywhere. US, of course, Europe, China. China has 150 million. India, everywhere we are. Okay. The good news is we just have to reach those 1 billion. Okay, they're the most socially you know, connected. Then look at the bottom 3 billion. They still have not discovered fossil fuels. I, I, uh, that woman is cooking my breakfast. I lived in villages with my wife for about 7 weeks, 3 years ago. This bottom 3 billion lack access to fossil fuels even for cooking. We know when there is a drought... Who's going to be wiped out or impacted? They're just living on that year's uh, farm output, subsistence farmers. So I got an opportunity to take this message to the highest uh, religion when I was elected to the Pontifical Academy of Science uh, by Pope John Paul. You know, when you get elected, you get that beautiful ring. I was going to bring it today and I forgot. Uh, Chain, not ring, sorry. This is an amazing academy. And uh, you know, it is origin traces to the Academia Lincei, and you know, the first member was Galileo. But of course, we all know what happened to Galileo. <laughs> uh, I am not anywhere close to suffering that fate.
0: <laughs>
1: this academy, amazingly, is the international scope, multiracial in composition. We have always there purely on scientific excellence, and it's non-sectarian. So there are 80 members, one third are Nobel laureates and uh, I'm not a Catholic I'm not even a Christian and in fact for the first six years when I went, every time I go to the meeting, I always had this fear, they will finally find out I'm not a Christian and <laughs> throw me out so in fact there are many uh, atheists who are members so it's just a and we discuss all topics under the sun, I realized the power of this church when I teamed up with Paul Crutzen, you know, who was a former faculty member and a bell laureate. We organized a meeting on glaciers, focusing on the Alps. We invited the top glaciologists, top physicists, top chemists, and religious scholars. Normally in these meetings, we come with a declaration. That sentence inserted... By the church and unanimously accepted by all the scientists what realized the power of this church. So we had this sentence, if we want justice and peace, we must protect the habitat. The words justice, peace, and protect, you can't find in any scientific document. And it was clear that we could coexist. I'm not being naive and saying science and religion can coexist. We know there are various issues. of, But in the case of environment, We are all trying to say the same thing. So I brief uh, uh, Pope Benedict. So he encourages us to organize, take this to the next stage, so organize sustainable humanity, sustainable responsibility. By the time we organized this, Pope Benedict had stepped down and Pope Francis stepped in. In fact, there are many uh, from UCSD who were being invited. Uh, Professor Walter Monk was one of our speakers in that meeting. So what we came, the remarkable conclusion we came to in that meeting, remember, we had about eight or ten Nobel laureates, economists, like Jeff Sachs, Joe Stiglitz. And what we all concluded was sustainable relation with nature requires change in attitudes towards nature. What is that attitude? Nature is not limitless to our you know, exploiting, whatever word you want to call it. It has limits. It has boundaries. And we have to change our attitude towards each other. but this intra of people not born yet? and intra-generation, three billion, who are going to suffer from our actions. Okay? And there, therefore requires moral leadership. And we were so lucky to take this message to the moral leader of the world, at least I consider him. Normally when you have an audience with the Pope, It's in such a breathtaking room. And there are a lot of frescoes they have not been able to capture. And I'm somewhere there in the back. These are all the members. This was another meeting. So I'm waiting. I think people like Walter would remember, all of us, about 60 of us, waiting in this parking lot. I'm having this vision of that spectacular room. So I'm preparing my speech. That's where... The Pope stays. He moved away from the Pope's residence to this dormitory where all of us stay when we go there meeting. He stays on the second floor. So we are waiting here. And to the left is the Peter's Basilica and we enter through the base. But instead, someone got up from a small car and there was Pope Francis standing right in front of me. So I was asked to summarize the proceedings of this meeting, and I was just given one and a half minutes, three sentences, mm-hmm. because that was the time the Time magazine guys were there. He was being considered Man of the Year, etc. So I just had to say, first of course I said something about climate change. My main sentence, second sentence is more than fifty percent of climate pollution is caused by the wealthy one billion. And I'm most worried about the bottom three billion who are going to suffer disproportionately. Then the Holy Father asked me, at, at the time he's smiling at me, he is asked, what can he do about this? In Spanish. And uh, sit behind him is the Chancellor of the Academy. He translated it. And I just said, if you can tell in your speeches, ask people to be better stewards of the planet. What was interesting was that I, walking back, Chancellor Marcello said, Ram, you just told the Pope what he has been saying for the last 30 years. So I felt a little bit embarrassed. I wish I'd told him something else. He looks like I'm preaching to the Pope, which is not what you want to do. Anyway, uh, I, I want to say what was the main thing with that is that finding ways to develop a sustainable relationship. uh, Sorry, let me back off. Professor Pasta Dasgupta, an economist from Cambridge, and I had organized this meeting. So Science Magazine invited us to write a summary of that meeting. And this is what our parting sentence there. Finding ways to develop a sustainable life with our planet requires not only the engagement of scientists, political leaders, and civil societies, but ultimately also a moral revolution. I think Bernie Sanders stole that word from us, the revelation. <laughs> Religious institutions can and should take the lead on bringing about such a need towards creation. Okay. So right after that, a week later, Pope Francis released the most you know, strongest statement. He said, creation is not a property which we can rule over at will, or even less is the property of only a few that he's addressing the top 1 billion, bottom 3 billion. Creation is a gift that we care for it and we use it for the benefit of all, always with great respect and gratitude. And then he released with uh, uh, patriarch Bartholomew, with whom he's meeting this week in Greece about the emigrants. they released more statements about climate change. So now let's come in, the next part starts, alliance between science, religion, and policy makers. So we, following that meeting, uh, about 10 months later in April 2015, in the meantime, the church had started writing the uh, encyclical. And so we said, protect the earth, dignify humanity, the moral dimensions of climate change. So the moral issue of climate change has become a central theme, okay? And we had invited Ban moon uh, you can see him in the middle, and Jeff Sachs is sitting next to me. And so we combined science and policy. Pope Francis gave his personal audience, and we started off, and no fuss, no, must, hope. Human-induced climate change this is a scientific reality. And its decisive mitigation is a moral and religious imperative for humanity. We are going beyond Catholicism here. Okay? So, and then two months later, uh, Pope Francis released the Laudato Si. What was, to me, each one of us, I feel all of us should read that document. It's one of the best documents written on climate change, mind you. And what they say is that the so-called integral ecology, that we should think about the interaction between natural systems and social systems. Shockingly, it's not done anywhere. If you look at the universities like ours, we have social science department, we have physics, we have chemistry, we have scripts. Only now we're beginning to talk. So after all, what we are doing is how are... Social system, our governments, our people interacting with nature. How does nature interact? So I think this. I'm thinking of this a major new discipline. UCSD has gotten a good start. Now they have understanding and protecting the planet. Anyway, so it had a major effect. So the last one in the series was July, <coughs> when we got together, meeting of the major city mayors from around the world. I was titled "Modern Slavery and Climate Change." Okay, so we had—I uh, had invited our governor Jerry Brown, and I made a slight mistake. I thought I was allowed to invite only one. It turned out there were six mayors from California and about eighteen from the U.S., and I could have invited our mayor, San Diego. I thought my quota was one, and we were severely criticized. All the mayors were Democratic mayors. I I had this fantastic chance of inviting a Republican mayor, and somebody was making a spectacular effect in climate change. You know, San Diego is going to become carbon neutral, certain segments Ah. of it. Anyway, at the end of it, uh, we came with a strong statement. I finally caught my. I went from handshake to paper hug. That was my <laughs> and in that document, you can see our Governor Jerry Brown's signature and uh, that Francisco is, of course, Papa Francisco. He basically said, thank you for this declaration. hope it will do some good. Okay. I want to move on So, uh, to a few topics. So... You know, after that, Pope Francis came to the U.S., right? He went to the White House, he addressed Congress, he went to the U.N. And what impact did it have? Turned out, not a bad impact. Of the order of 8 to 10%, people changed their view. And it turns out Americans were one of the few who subscribed to the morality argument. Which doesn't surprise me. Remember, any natural catastrophes in the world, Americans, and our kids are out there helping them, right? We are very generous. So I think this moral argument is having some traction. I'm not going to claim it's going to win over, but all we are hoping for is about 10%. Right now, half of America supports major actions. We have 10 more percent than we get majority, Okay. And, and then came the uh, uh, UN Summit. <clears throat> I was surprised I, uh, they included me as uh, as part of the Holy See delegation. They had never had a scientist. It took them 500 years to recover from Galileo, I think. <laughs> <laughs> and what was interesting was that in that news conference, uh, on the left extreme is uh, uh, Archbishop Auza. He's the permanent representative to the Vatican. Sitting next to me is Cardinal Turkson from Ghana. He was supposed to have been the pope, and there was uh, so he led the delegation. And the next person, I don't... so I had talked about this one billion, three billion, and somebody asked Cardinal Turkson about population. This everything got mixed up. BBC reported next day that says Cardinal Turkson supports family planning to slow down climate change. Of course, that's not what he said at all. And uh, one major, uh, so leaving on, so I think that's, I I built my case, how this alliance can help. And we are not stopping there. Of course, we have to bring in other religions. Last summer, Walter Monk and I had a privilege of sharing the podium with the, uh, the Dalai Lama. The meeting was on climate change. So we are planning to have some event like this. Ultimately, our dream is to have a summit of all these faith leaders. And, and, of course, we are still just relying on faith. We are going to be leaving a few billion who are not pertaining in religion or maybe atheists. But at least if we can get those who are religious to take this problem and support. What we need is support for drastic actions. Okay? What is a drastic action? What you see is doing. I'm going to go carbon neutral, or San Diego saying. That's what we need. So that's what, uh, you know, uh, in the introduction was mentioned. We have now a group of 50 researchers from the entire UC system. We are taking the California example to develop scalable solutions for the rest of the planet. I want to conclude. I forgot to mention, the first thing we need to do is become carbon neutral. What does that mean? We have to replace our energy system to renewables. Okay, nuclear is part of it, but it has its own uh, controversy surrounding it. And it has been the cost has been estimated. It's about trillion dollars per year globally. I'm not talking about the U.S. for the next 25 years. That looks a huge amount, but right now. Fossil fuel subsidy is $540 billion. Mm-hmm. So if you say we divert this, mm-hmm. then it costs $450 a person amongst the top $1 billion. So basically it's a $450 dollar problem. Mm-hmm. And we are willing to sacrifice our children, our grandchildren, generations and generations. Scientists are now talking about sea level. We used to talk about half a meter, one meter. Now we are talking about at least seven feet this century, about 50 to 100 feet in the next four or 500 years. Okay? The second thing we need to do is to give the poor access to clean technology. Okay? They are there. All they need is little little photovoltaics. So we started a project on this, on the cooking. That cook stove still uses biomass, but cuts down the emissions. You see, it emits black carbon, which is 2,000 times more potent than CO2, soot. So that stove, by cutting it, cuts down the climate commitment by 5 tons per person. Okay. So the question is, it's $70. And the woman's take-home pay is a dollar a day, so it's about six weeks of her paycheck. Who amongst us would buy a cook stove for six weeks of her paycheck, right? So in this project, you know, my daughter, who is a wireless technology expert, came with an idea. He said, why not we hook each other cook stove with a simple sensor and we use the sensor data to convert her carbon footprint and give her carbon credits, okay? So we tried this with remarkable success in 4,000 homes. So what we need is connect that woman to a local bank, who will give her a loan. Then she comes to Nithya, my daughter, who would convert her stove into a smart stove. She gets the data, sends it to my lab. I convert the hours of clean cooking to carbon credits. And I have persuaded a, a, a rich donor to start a climate fund we started in small scale, right? So from that fund, my daughter comes in, puts up money on the cell phone, and the woman gets paid through her cell phone. We tried it paying through the bank, but the bank was five miles away, and she has no vehicle. Just imagine walking to a bank for five miles. So Vodafone teamed up with us. So now, you know, Intel, Vodafone, World Bank is all working with us. So we are ready to scale to million homes. Okay? So all we need, uh, anyone anyone can do it. You have $10,000 to start a climate mitigation fund. That will fund uh, about 100 stoves. So that's the way it's going to go, you know, bottom up. Otherwise, the cook stove thing alone is a $30 billion problem, and no one wants to take it up. We have left $3 billion behind, fending for themselves. So the my conclusion is individual actions can have a huge effect. We don't, we cannot, we cannot, we should not wait for big government to do it. We need them ultimately, but each one of us can do something. So, we can still solve the problem. Don't forget it's a $450 problem. When people say trillion, trillion looks huge. Public support is not there, and that's where the faith leaders can play a transformative role. Thank you.
2: How would some of these religious leaders feel about the idea of contraception as a, as a way of controlling population, as a way of helping the climate change problem? Because some religions don't like the idea of contraception, and therefore it might be a, anathema to them.
1: Right. This was exactly the Paris Climate Conference question: Certainly, population is a huge issue, but climate change is not from population. Climate change is unsustainable consumption by one billion. So, like I mentioned, uh, population is a huge problem in terms of local ecology, destroying habitat, but climate change. Is caused by one billion. We shouldn't forget that. 60% of the emissions come from us. And so we need to address that problem first. We have to address the population problem, but scientifically, there won't be justification to say, control the population. They can say, you guys are doing it. So that's the issue
2: there. Thank you for for, for, uh, for your, talk, your logic and your facts and everything, everything is impeccable. <laughs> everything is impeccable, and I, I'm sure you have everyone in this room completely convinced about the success of your plan. However, as I'm sure you know, there's quite a substantial segment of the population, largely represented by one of our political parties, that refuses to uh, believe or denies climate change, and I, I think that they're one of the main objections, uh, obstructions to putting something like your plan in action. Do you have any plans for suggestions for how we could do that?
1: I mean, it's, a, it's an excellent question. So I'm sort of, and again, I'm not a political scientist. Sometimes I feel what am I doing here? Right? But uh, If you, I'm not thinking about our leaders, like congressmen and senators, but I'm thinking about the people. So they all go to the church. In fact, there are more religious folks amongst those who don't think climate change is a problem we should worry about. So if they hear it from their churches, that's what we are hoping it's a neutral ground in which they can discuss this. For example, I think next week or next Friday, I'm, I'm walking into a Lions Den. There is a local church that try your idea here. So, I'm going to talk to a, a, there's religious leaders convening there. So, I think that is where you all can help when you go to your church and said persuade your to, to talk about this issue it's not going to happen overnight but if you do this for a few years and again uh, I, I, I'm not saying this should be just done in, amongst Christianity the Jewish, Hindus Buddhists, Muslims we all should do that in fact after the Pope released his encyclical two weeks later in Turkey eighty. Muslim Islam leaders got together and they said, we are behind the church on this. Just imagine uh, Islam religion supporting Christianity. I have a feeling the environment is where who is going to say, I want to destroy the environment, right? So I think in the environmental issue, there is a convergence. I don't think there is any controversy. So far I have not seen... anyone, you know, raising any objection to that. But I have been among the converters, (laughs) so I... We haven't tested the waters, but I'm hopeful.
0: Uh, You mentioned that there is one billion that causes the problem. Uh, That billion is probably the one with the least proportion of believers in the planet. So the message of religion may not get there so easily. And second, the billion is a very heterogeneous lot. Yes. And you should perhaps reduce faster the average of the high consumers by differentiating either with taxes or with any other action the consumption. Each one should have a consumption per head allowed per year and a number that is ratcheted down. And so I think some, some of these actions will not be based on religion. I don't think so. What do you
1: think? Uh, Absolutely. But remember, uh, in this billion, uh, 275 million are in America, US. So it's safe to assume we are all part of this billion. And so, so just focusing on the American part, 275, I'd be willing to speculate half already have agreed that we have to take actions. It's the other 50% we are worried about. So, what I'm harping on, what I am banking on, is that amongst the 50% or 40%, 140 million who are skeptical about this, most of them are religious oriented. That's what the sample says. Okay? So our remember you are never going to change everyone all we need to get drastic actions in the US right now we have 45% supporting if we have 55 to 60 supporting we are home free because Americans have the technology right and and yeah i think i personally think like in everything else Without American leadership, it's not going to happen. The world looks to us for leadership. I've done scientific field experiments in 1998 with 200 scientists from around the world. There were Germans, there was French, there was Russians, Indians. But they always look to us to make that first move. So we fortunately hold that power to change.
0: Um, what do you say to people who say we don't need to sacrifice? We're an ingenious people, and we'll come up with ways to continue to do what we're doing and and stop global warming, for instance, with geoengineering.
1: I agree with everything you said except that last phrase. <laughs> uh, I don't know if many of you know what geoengineering is. Just, you know, remember, smoking causes cancer. Instead of stopping smoking, you fix your problem with something else. And I, I have a heart attack, right? And after the first heart attack, I fortunately went into my cardiologist and said, I'm going to cut you open and fix you, but you have to change your habits. You have to change your behavior. Ultimately, behavioral change is critical, whether it's disease or anything. So the geoengineering is, what it says is, oh, don't worry about this. The climate is warming. Put some pollution particles which bounce the sunlight back and cool. That's geoengineering. The others say, suck the CO2 out of the air. I'm fine with that, but the problem with that is it may fix the climate. But the thing I didn't talk about is carbon dioxide is making the ocean acidic. Our Scripps biological oceanographers is saying maybe in 50 years from now that could be the more existential threat, not even climate change. You poison the ocean, make the ocean acidic, you're going to commit suicide. Your food chain is there. So that's why geoengineering, none of us think is a fix. But I want to take your first part of it, that we are not, at least I am not saying the problems with way of living. What I'm saying is that our technology is outdated, our energy consumption. We need to change, that's all. You can still enjoy your style of living. You're not hurting anything if you have an electric car charged by solar. Remember, my Impala dream became the smart dream? Make a smart dream for each of you. So it's not, we are not, no one is attacking the standard of living. Not my colleagues, at least. It's that, the fossil fuel technology has become outdated. And there is huge self-interest on the part of corporations to hold on to that fossil fuel energy. You can understand that too. There's another 20 trillion dollars to be taken out of the ground and made money. We are telling you, no, you can't do it. So going carbon neutral, I'm not claiming all the technology is there. We don't have the battery technology. Now, take my electric car. My life has become stressed. I'm always looking at that meter, I'm going to run out of battery charge, right? With fossil fuel car, I drive and there's a gas station. So uh, I'm not being naive here. The technology has to improve, but certain parts are already there. The solar photovoltaic I have for the last seven years, and it's paid off, of course, because of rebates. But the next seven years, I'm making money out of it. I'm not paying any electric bill. But, you know, uh, don't get me wrong. You need capital cost. Remember that woman, why didn't she buy my stove? It's six weeks of her paycheck. The solar on your roof costs about three months to four months of your paycheck, assuming you make (laughs) $100,000. Right? So we all have the same problem, that capital cost. So that is why we need public support, so the government can
0: subsidize it. Uh, Ram, I have four uh, hopeful thoughts to come up with, and pick and choose if you'd like to discuss any of them. One, I've heard the military say uh, that we could save in the U.S. a billion dollars a day by getting off fossil fuel, getting the military off fossil fuel, that they're screaming to get off fossil fuel. Um, That's wonderful. Uh, Your thoughts on carbon fee and dividend, especially a revenue-neutral one, such as Citizens Climate Lobby is proposing? Um, Say that again? Carbon? Yeah, a carbon fee and dividend. In other words, a carbon tax that's revenue neutral. Uh, Citizens Climate Lobby is working with Congress on that. Um, uh, SolutionsProject.org, Mark Jacobson's work, who says within 20 years we can uh, switch uh, to basically carbon free for the same amount of money we're spending anyway. And lastly, carbon sequestration. I've heard things, I've heard claims such as we can sequester all this CO2 we put in the atmosphere uh, over, you know, since the Industrial Revolution on about 11% of unused farmland uh, that is, you know, available now. Anyway, your thoughts on any of those? Thank you. The
1: carbon, taking the carbon tax, Remember a president who said no new tax and lost the election because of tax. So in America I don't the tax is still a dirty word. I don't know how it's going to go. But certainly there are so many things we can do to cut the first 30%. It's so easy. Just give you one example. The food waste. You know if food waste was a country The first largest emitter is China, second is U.S., third is food waste. We throw so much food. 40% of the food in the U.S. is thrown away. If we can just capture that, convert Mm -hmm. to methane. It's a huge saving there. And uh, I I can go on, there are a number of things we can, I like everything on, on your list. Ultimately, the solution to the problem is to price carbon. And, and I think what they're coming up with now is $40 a ton, social cost of carbon, based on the damage it does to severe storms, floods, insurance, sea level rise. And we are emitting $50 a ton, 50 billion tons. So if we persuade everyone to pay their due $40, that's $2 trillion. All I need is $450 billion. I can give you back one and a half trillion out of that. So but that's a solution I don't see politically happening. And, uh, but the Mark Jacobsons, I agree, what he's talking, about. see, there, as soon as you say solar and wind, the skeptics say, "Oh, it's intermittent. What are you going to do in the night? What are you going to do when it rains?" Okay, I have 50 for 50% sunshine. If I can solve 50% of the problem, I am happy. Don't complain about the night and this. Let's solve the, half the problem. The peak electricity demand is in daytime when the sun is out there. So these are just excuses thrown at us.
2: Uh, we, not too long ago, we had pretty high gas prices and no one liked it, but the world didn't come to an end either. And as the market price of gas has gone down, in in an ideal world, I don't understand why we wouldn't have taxes that would ratchet up to keep the price of gas high. I mean, provably, it didn't kill us. And um, the second part of that is we have to have taxes anyway to run whatever we want run and done in 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 our public life. And taxes always reduce whatever is taxed why wouldn't we tax
1: that which we want used less? We have uh, David Victor in this campus. If anyone knows the answer to that question, it's him. We need political scientists, and there are many uh, in this campus working on this problem. I I, I must say, uh, without sounding like a commercial, UCSD in the last five years has gotten its act together. We are all starting to work together from different Aspects, economists, political scientists, ecologists, social scientists. I have a, I'm teaching a course uh, this quarter, in fact, where we are having people from 18 different disciplines lecturing the students on all aspects of this issue. So, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the tax issue is a big black box for me.
0: I think we are ready to conclude on that note. <laughs>